we're starting a, a new series today, and we're going to be in the, the letter to the Philippians, and it's going to go uh, for a couple months here. Um, and I'm, I like starting new series, and, and I, it's always exciting. And, and this one in particular, you know, it, it's a word that we, we talk about a lot, but I don't think we, we, we really unpack, we really understand. You know, James really helped us understand this idea of a lived faith. And we, you know, we talked about that a lot and wisdom and that comes from that. But here, Paul is going to talk about this word joy, joy. And he's going to help us understand more about, you know, what joy is and, and how we can have it. Because Paul had this, he, he had this amazing, like, faith that led to this incredible joy. And, and when, you, when you hear about it, when you see a situation, to me, you would have to be crazy not to want what he had. You know, a lot of times, I, I told you before, when my mom would try to scold us as, you know, when we were when we were little boys, my brothers and I, and and she might try to bring out the Jesus card, and we would always play back the card of, yeah, but I'm not Jesus, you know, I can't possibly be Jesus. So you know, if my mom had maybe, you know, changed her tactics a little bit, she might have played the Paul card, because the truth is, is we weren't wrong in saying we're not Jesus. We weren't wrong in saying if it was a competition, Jesus had a little bit of an unfair advantage. He was, for goodness sakes, the son of God, right? But Paul, Paul wasn't. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that Paul was the son of God, that he was incarnate, that he was Jesus' little brother or anything like that. He's, he's a guy, he's a human being. And so what we see happening in Paul's life, you know, we, we have to realize that everything there is available to us. And what I find remarkable about Paul when he's writing this letter, and it's one of the times when context is so powerful and you have to remind yourself of this all the time, he's writing this letter most likely he's in Rome. Most likely he's under house arrest. And what that meant was he had appealed to have his case heard by the emperor. And so he has to wait until the emperor decides to call him. And, and Paul's a nobody in the emperor's mind. And the emperor is going to have this ability to either, you know, let him go or have him killed. He, either, either way, and, and you might think like, well, you know, they're going to hear his case and surely and that's not how it worked. Emperor could be having a bad day and just decide it's a good day for somebody to die and you, they might die. Might just be a bad day for you too. But here he is, He's, he, he, he actually as a Roman citizen had this right, but he had to like, get the house and it's believed that he had probably had some kind of an apartment not very big and that's where he's going to stay he, he can't go out the, all the time that he's there there's a, there's a Roman soldier who's there who's guarding him but he can otherwise 
you know, kind of roam about the apartment. He can otherwise have visitors. And we know in the book of Acts, it tells us that, that he has visitors who come and go. He can do anything he wants in that room. But he's in that room. And for Paul, that must have been, you know, particularly difficult. Because Paul had this call to take the gospel everywhere he could. We know, in, you know when, when he's writing the letter to Rome, he'd written earlier, you know, he's, he has plans. He, he's already done, you know, a couple missionary journeys. He, he has plans. He wants to go as far as what was Iberia, which is where we call Spain. He has all these plans. He doesn't want to be cooped up in a room. And yet, and yet, this letter, it's full of joy. How's that possible? He's not doing what, what he thinks is his, the call on his life. He's not out there planting churches, visiting the churches he has planted, helping them. He knows they're struggling. He knows that there's false teachers that are coming in and, and trying to lead them astray. And yet, in that room where he can't leave, he has joy. And it's not a deluded joy. It's not a, you know, put on a happy face kind of joy. It's real. It's deep. It's abiding. And I don't know how. I mean, I, I think about us, like as soon as I heard this week, oh no, I think they knew I was going to preach the sermon, so they wanted to help me give an illustration. So they, you know, the mayor and the governor, you know, let's, let's you know, kind of start restricting, you know, movement around society again. And, and here we are, in a modern world where we have a house, most of us, and even if you're in an apartment, it's probably bigger than what Paul had. And, you know, you have telephone, television, internet, you have all these things. And, and you, know, you, you know, people are still going out, going to the store, and we feel like we're just stuck. We feel like you know, what, what can we possibly do? And some people actually are becoming kind of depressed about the fact that they have this, this, this limited movement. And some people are putting on hold. They're like, they have plans. And maybe they even think God had a plan, had something for them to do. Maybe they used to teach before all this happened, or maybe they had ministries that they did. And, and in all that time, you know, of this time, they're thinking like, well, you know, I'm just going to wait. You know, and then when all this is done, I'll, I'll get back to, you know, letting God use me. And here's Paul. Here's Paul in a little room that he cannot leave. And he does things in that room that transform the world. If you don't think 
that God can use you in your situation right now, your problem is not just that you can never have the joy that Paul has. Your problem is much deeper than that. Here's Paul. If I took a survey, how many of you have ever read a letter from the first century other than the ones we find in the Bible? How many of you today are still influenced by what the emperor said? Anybody? If Emperor Nero, anybody, you know, studying the works of Emperor Nero, he was kind of crazy, so it's probably not a good idea to model your life after him. But the most powerful people of that day have been forgotten. Paul's letters continue, continue to not just change lives, change entire societies. It's been going on for 2,000 years. He never thought like, oh, I can't do my ministry anymore because I'm in this room. When this, when this is done, then I'll go and I'll serve God again. It's like, no, right here, right now, I will serve. I will be faithful. I think even if I never looked at the letter of Paul, if you just got that in your heads, that a man much more restricted than we are could have such a profound effect on his world right then and for 2,000 years since and for long after all of us are gone, then you will never feel sorry for yourself in the situations you find yourself in now. You will never say, God cannot use me because I'm too isolated, I'm too limited. No. You'll be like Paul. But you got to get there. You got to get there. And for Paul, he had this joy. And, you know, what is joy? You know, joy is, is more than, you know, it's not happiness. You know, we've, you know, people talk about happiness and, you know, we have it in, you know, the pursuit of happiness, right? We talk about that. But joy is something else. Joy is kind of an attitude. It's like this mixture of, of hope and faith and trust. It's, a, it's an inner strength. It's really this unchanging state of being satisfied and confident regardless of the situation. Understand Paul. There's a part of Paul that wants to be anywhere else but where he is. And yet he has joy where he is because he is satisfied and he's confident. And it's not in himself. It's not in himself. It's not simply making the most of a bad situation. It's not simply like life gave, you, gave, you know, gave him lemons so he's making lemonade. No. It's in his very core. In modern terms, it's in his DNA. He cannot be anything but joyous, regardless of the situation. Happiness is part of it. You know, if you 
those of you who've been with me here from the beginning, you know, it was actually five years to the day I preached my first sermon as pastor here. And, and one of the sermons I preached in that first month when I look back was, um, you know, it's like this thing about the tyranny of happiness, about how our culture is caught up in, in, in this, this like addiction to happiness. Everything is about, you know, our entertainment or, or to keep us happy. And we raise our kids that way. We tell our kids, well, as long as you're happy, you know, we, 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 when they choose a career, when they choose a spouse, whatever they do, it's all about their happiness. And happiness is addicting. It's different from joy. Because happiness is not something, the fact that you keep having to keep people happy tells you it's not something that abides. It's not a satisfaction regardless of the situation. In fact, happiness is highly depend, dependent upon the situation. It'll come and go. We ruin our children. We ruin our children by making their happiness the primary, you know, your primary objective as a parent. And by the way, I was, I'm there. I would, you know, I can't tell you I didn't, you know, do that. But joy, it's different. And why should we want it? Well, we should want it for a couple reasons. One is it's an indicator of our relationship to Christ. When you have that abiding joy, you know something's right about your relationship to Christ. That hope, that contentment, that satisfaction, it's not self-generated. And it's also a witness. It's a witness to yourself and it's a witness to others of God's power and presence. When people see you with joy in situations that would crush them, they know there's a difference. You see, we have joy, this abiding joy, when we know God, when we trust God, and when our relationship is right with him. Paul had all of that. And because of that, he could be in a little room and have great joy. Well, when we go into the passage today that we're going to look at, you know, we, 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 can, we can see that, you know, he talks about joy. And, and, and I think sometimes, you know, we use this word interchangeably. But the, the truth is, is I think, you know, we have this world that's obsessed with happiness, but a world that doesn't have a lot of joy. Not a lot of joy. You know, you can just see it even in how just overall, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a election year. And you can see like day to day, minute to minute, you know, as soon as a situation changes, you know, it's, it's not, it's not joy. The reaction just goes opposite direction. See, when we're 
focus more on happiness, our, our focus is more on ourselves, or our focus is more on you know, the, the people who are closest to us. Because we realize, like, because happiness is like a drug, it's addicting, we realize that it's impossible to keep everybody happy, so we're very selective. There's only certain people we want to keep happy. We want to keep happy either the people that are closest to us that we love, or we want to keep happy the people that are influential, like our boss or somebody that can hurt us. Joy is different. And we're going to see this from Paul today. It's so different. And so here's Paul under house arrest. And he's writing to this church in, in Philippi. And it's a church that he had spent some, some time with, not as much as he spent with Ephesus or Corinth. But he had gone back and he had visited. He's very close to the people there. And he writes in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you are you all making my prayer you are all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So here, this is, you know, Paul typically started letters. He'd have this greeting and in this case he mentions Timothy because Timothy was someone who had been there with the church at Philippi from the very beginning. He's on that first trip there when they, when they start the church. They know him. And then he, you know, he gives his, you know, this expression of grace, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he'll do a kind of combination. Paul will typically do some kind of like, like praise to God but then he'll also say something about the people who he's writing to. And so here, you know, he says, I thank God. I thank God whenever I remember you in prayer. I thank God for you. And here's why. And so what we find when Paul writes this is where we find where, where Paul finds his joy he finds his joy, first of all, where he says that, that they've been partners, partners in the gospel from the first day. And so he finds joy in, in their active partnership. It's interesting because that word partnership is, is actually the Greek word koinonia. And we like to use the word koinonia to mean fellowship. And we like fellowship to mean something where we're having an event where we're eating primarily. And so that's, you know, that's kind of our modern interpretation of, of fellowship. But notice here, he's not saying, you know, I thank you for all the times we sat down and had a potluck dinner, or we had time of fellowship at Zippy's. It's really not about food. 
It's a partnership because that's really what koinonia is. Koinonia is really that partnership we have with each other. And that word is really partnership. People throw the word around a lot, partnership, 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 a lot. And what they usually mean is just some kind of general agreement that somebody's doing something with somebody else. I used to always, you know, growing up, I'd hear like, oh, our Hawaii Baptist Convention has a partnership with some mainland convention, usually one in the south, like Alabama or Texas or Georgia or something like that. And as I got a little older and I got a little more, um, some people would say wise, other people would say sarcastic, I would, I would ask, um, so in this partnership, when are we going to Alabama to help them? And of course the answer was never. It was always a partnership which was really a one-way partnership. They came to help us. But we rarely went to help them. And for me, that's not really a partnership. The partnership is us working together, cooperating together, doing things together. Yeah, we acknowledge some people have more resources and, and ability to help than others, but we're doing it together. We're helping one another. And because of that, there is a, there's a relationship that develops. We're not simply doing a job. Some of you know I'm a really, um, I'm a really bad golfer. Like I like to golf, but I'm not very good. And so when I do golf, I've, I just go out just to be with my friends and we're out there golfing and having a good time. And you know this, I, I went this week and, and when I went, you know, they haven't yet made it a rule, but we kind of did it anyways, where we all three had our own cart. You know, so it was okay. We, you know, we saw each other, you know, and talked a little bit, but it was really different from when you're like riding in the cart with somebody. You're spending, you know, three or four hours and you're having conversation. And it's, you know, it's a relationship. It's not just hitting a ball and chasing it and then talking a little bit whenever you find time. And I think sometimes that's how we, we think of like, of like partnership, Christian ministry working together. We get together, we do a few things, but really when we're partnering together, it's that building of that relationship with one another. That, that relationship gets stronger. I learn more about you, you learn more about me. It's where our friendships are strengthened. It's not just about doing the job and just getting the job done. Yeah, the job's important, but what's more important is that, that we come together and we're partners together. And Paul finds great joy in that. I think that's something that we've lost in churches sometimes because we've become so task-oriented. We forgot the joy that comes from just being together. And as a, as a result, sometimes when we have to come together to work, it's not joyful because we don't really know each other. We get on each other's nerves. You know, some people act a certain way. We don't like it. And then, you know, we do it. We get the job done. But there's no joy. There's no joy. 
And so when we, when we truly partner, it's the building of koinonia. It's the bo- building of fellowship. We, we partner and, and, and we not only achieve what we need to achieve, but something happens within us and between us. And we should find joy in that. Well, he also uses that, that verse that was turned into a song, and he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He finds joy in God's faithfulness. He knows that, that, that God will complete the work in the Philippians. And he's not just talking about just some little work. He's talking about like bringing them to that, that, that day when they stand before the Lord and that he'll complete the work. And that brings them joy. You see, we often think, we often think about the time that we are going to stand before God when we will receive the righteousness of Christ in, a, in full. You know, we, we think about that. But do we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ? And does it bring us joy to know that that work that God is doing in us, that process of sanctification, does it bring us joy to know that that's going to happen with my brothers and sisters? Or do I just think about my own? Paul. Paul finds joy because he knows, like, you know, the Philippians, you know, they, they, they weren't his worst church. They weren't his best church. But they, you know, they, they had some strengths, but they had some struggles. But he had confidence that God was going to keep working with that church, keep working with those people, and to complete the work that he started. You know, he, he says in verse 7, he goes, you know, you are all partakers with me of grace. And when he's talking about that, it's, it sounds similar to what he's, what he's saying about partnership, but, but it's even more than that. Because he adds to that, like, in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He's... he's He's saying, you know, that you supported me. You supported me. And this is where that grace part comes in. You supported me even when I was in prison. Even when I couldn't help you anymore. I can't do anything for you. I'm in prison. I may not ever get out. I may be killed. And you still support me. You still stand by me. It's the ultimate expression of grace. Not because you can help me. Not because I can help you. Not because what you can get out of it. It's like you're a partaker of grace. In my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. In all things, you're supporting me. And I find joy in that. You see, that's one of the things that I think we sometimes miss. We sometimes miss that when we have faith and when we have unconditional love for one another, 
that it strengthens one another. You see, part of my joy, part of my joy is knowing that my brothers and sisters will stand with me even when I can't help them at all. When I can't do anything for them, when I'm helpless, they're still going to stand with me. And part of your joy is the same thing, is knowing that, being confident in that, that people aren't just helping you, they're not just relating to you because of what you do for them or because you just happen to be here. It's because we're bound together by this grace and this love that says it doesn't matter whether you're helping me anymore. It's one of the reasons I go back five years ago and in the first couple months, you know, I, 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 think, I thought this was so important for us to do and I still think it's important for us to do and we've had our ups and downs and how well we've done it. But that is that, that we are making sure that the ones who went before us in this church, those who, who, are, who are too old anymore, too unhealthy to be able to come, that they are not forgotten. That just because they no longer can serve, you know, teaching Sunday school, being in the, you know, Wednesday night, or they can't even attend anymore, that we don't forget them because if we were truly bound together as partakers of grace, as partners, as being in koinonia, just because they can't do anything doesn't mean that we can forget them. And too many churches do that. Out of sight, out of mind. You no longer, you know, can, can serve on the worship team. You no longer can teach, so okay, that's nice but I'm not going to make the same effort to support you because what I care about is more what you can do for me or you can do for us than just caring about you. You understand that if our church was overwhelmed with the attitude of everybody knowing they will never be forgotten, that they will I think my microphone's going in and out again. That if they know that they will never be forgotten, do you know what that does? What that does to us? That does to our church? How it changes everything that we are? I think there'd be a lot more joy And he's saying they're partakers. He's saying it's active. It's not just words. It's not just, oh, I'll pray for you. Yeah, they'll, they'll pray for you, and then prayer's important. But there's actions. In fact, we know that, that in the exchange of this letter, back and forth, there's actually gifts being given to Paul, probably so that he can pay for the the place he's renting and to have food. But they're supporting him. They're, they're putting actions behind it. It's not just good thoughts. It's not just good words. 
Very much like James, when James was saying, what good is your faith if all you say is, be blessed, be warmed, and go your way? Well, we get to the second part. We saw these things where Paul finds joy in the Philippians, finds joy in what God is doing with the Philippians. But he, he also says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he's just helped them understand like your faith, your faithfulness, your support, you know, your grace, your love has been encouraging to me and, and it's, it's why I have joy. And now he says, this is what I want for you. And he talks about that he has this prayer that their love will abound. I don't know if you're like me, but if I was in prison and I wanted to say, this is what I'm praying for, I would probably be like, um, I pray that I will get out of here soon, right? Pray that I'll get out, and oh, by the way, I pray that love will abound, right? Somewhere on the list, I might pray the same things Paul prays. But my first prayer would be that. Notice, Paul has an opportunity to write down his prayer, and his prayer isn't for himself. It's not for his situation. It's that your love, your love may abound. I like that abound more and more. It's really this idea of, of growing without limit. You see, the thing about love is that, is, is that love is, is something that we can actually experience. And if you, you cannot have joy, you cannot have this abiding joy if you don't have this love. But it's not just a feeling. Love is a feeling. Love is something to be experienced. But it's more than a feeling. If you notice, he says, not just that it will grow without limit, not that it will abound more and more, but then he says, with knowledge and all discernment. This is why it's better for Paul to have written the Bible than me, because I would have said instead, not a stupid, ignorant, blind love. I'm not saying some stupid love, some ooey-gooey feeling that just says, oh, I just love everybody, I just want the best for everybody, and everything's awesome, and let's, uh, you know, go our way. No, he says, with knowledge and all discernment. If I'm going to borrow from James again, I'm going to say, he wants us to have a wise love. A deep love. Not a stupid love. Not an ignorant love. 
not a blind love. There's this connection he's making. This connection, and I've used this term before. It's a, it's a term that you know, was used a lot in the 19th century, early 20th century, and I think we've lost it, but I like it. It's this holy love. Holy love, it distinguishes it from the love we find in the world. But it's a love that comes from God, but, but it's a love that, that we, we understand more and we can do more and, and it's more powerful in our lives when we have knowledge. See, when you're being a disciple, which is, you know, the thing I've always told you, a healthy church is a community of disciples. Disciples are people who are, who are studying God's word. If you're being a disciple, you're not just acquiring knowledge. You're acquiring knowledge so that you can love better. So you can love like God loves better, more powerfully. He uses that word discerning. And that word is, you know, it's kind of a difficult word to know for sure what, what Paul means by it. But discerning is, a, is, a, is not really like a love that says, I love you and I don't love you. You know, it's not that, right? It's discerning in the sense that, that, that it has insight. Again, it gets that idea of wisdom. It's this idea of, of loving in a practical way. It's, it's being able to love in a way where, where you can love in every situation, but you don't love the same way in every situation. Remember, I've, I've tried to you know, tell you the distinction, which I think is, is the doorway to this kind of love. And that's the distinction between love and the expressions of love. As Christians, you're supposed to have God's nature to love. It's no longer a choice to love or not to love. The only choice is how do we express the love in different situations. That's where discernment comes in. That's where knowledge comes in. Because we don't express love the same way in every situation. Even sometimes to the same people. But he's saying, that's what I want you to have. I don't want you just to know what to say. I want you to know how to say it. I don't want you to just know what to do. I want you to know how to do it. You know, before I uh, decided to pay more attention to the Bible, I used to pride myself on saying, you know what, I treat everybody the same. Which meant like if I was tactless, I could be tactless to everybody. I wasn't going to treat you special. I was going to talk to you the same way I talked to someone else. I realized that that's really not what the Bible tells us. There's no thing where the Bible says you be exactly the same way in every situation to every person. No. We, in love, know what to say, how to say it. In fact, as we talked about with wisdom, part of wisdom has a spirit and attitude, and part of that spirit and attitude is being peaceable and gentle. Knowledgeable, discerning love. 
I think he prays for them to have that for, for two reasons. One is he wants them to have it. And he knows that any conflict that's happening in their church right now, that's where they need to start to fix it. That they would have a love that grows without limits, but that has knowledge and discernment. But I think the second reason is because Paul is saying, this is what I want in my own life. This is what I strive for in my own life. And even though he's not going to connect the dots for us, let me connect them. If you want joy, if you want the joy that allows you to be in prison, perhaps facing death on any day at any time, if you want joy that allows you to have joy, even though you feel your life's calling, you've fallen short of what you think God wants you to do because there's so much more out there to do, If you want to know how to have joy in that situation, Paul says, let your love, let love grow without limit. Without limit. Knowledge, with knowledge and discernment. You know what it means without limit? It means without limit. It means you don't pick and choose who you're going to love and who you're not going to love. You don't just love when it's safe and when it's comfortable. You love when it's hard. You love when it's weird and it's awkward. You love when it's dangerous. But we've so adopted this attitude of, God, I want your love, I want your love, but it, it needs to be a safe love. You know, I was running this week, and sometimes I listen to books, and I was listening to Chronicles of Narnia as I was running, and, you know, it's that, saying, it's that statement that, you know, about Aslan the lion. He's not a tame lion. But we want God. We want his love, but we want it to be a tame love. We want it to be the kind of love that only lets us do things that make us feel good, that we feel we can do, but never pushes us never makes things risky. We want to only love lovable people. And God's just like, really? That's what you think I did? Do you think I love you because you're so lovable? Do you think that? Paul knows, he knows a love that grows without bounds, grows without limits. It's knowledgeable and discerning. That's what helps us to be pure, blameless, and righteous. It's how we have that joy.